You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. So good to see you all this morning. It's good for us to be able to spend time in, in God's Word and be reminded of what a, what a treasure trove of, of blessing He's given to us in it. I'm reminded every time I have the opportunity to, to preach, to be able to study, to do this, uh, what a precious thing it is, because it really what you can share on a Sunday morning is such a tiny little fraction of, what, of, what's, of what's there, of what you could study, of the things that, that we could share. There is so much truth. These things are so rich, and there's so much for us to see here. Um, and so what little bit we have, I'd like for us to... to um, we pray that God will, will be with us and will speak to us this morning as we try to see the message that God has for us here in Columbus, Ohio, here in Bexley, from this message to Pergamum uh, almost 2,000 years ago. So we've already read the message this morning, and what we want to hear, try to understand this morning, the title that I've given this message is Thriving in an Idolatrous World. One word I thought about using was the word pagan, but that's not one that we use much anymore. That, that just in the general sense that the, classic, the classical world had a whole slew of gods that they would worship, and that was just the expected thing that people would do. And here you have this body of believers in the middle of this place that he calls the place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. These people help us to see what it looks like to live there. As in each of these letters, we see uh, something about who Jesus is, the one who has, to the, the angel of the church, the messenger, the pastor of the church. Then he commends them on something. Then he gives them something that they could do differently. And then he, he, he holds out hope of victory for those who overcome. And that's what we see this morning. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded not too long ago, we took our family down to the Smoky Mountains, and we, we did a hike down one of those trails. And this was the, the layout of this trail was such that you would walk to a certain point, and then you would walk back out the same way. It wasn't a loop or anything like that. When you do a trail like that, one of the things that happens is you see people coming back from where you, you're going. And there are two things that I, that I thought about when it comes to this. One is that people are terrible at judging the distance that you are when they're coming back from it. They keep saying, it's right there. It's right around the corner. And it's not that close. Our kids keep saying, they said it was, they were wrong. It's not that close. It's going to be further away. But one thing that that did do for us is they also said, it's worth it. It's worth it when you get there. When you see the waterfall, when you see the sight there, when you see the view, it's worth it. And I think us hearing this message from Jesus to the church at Pergamum can help us. Uh, in we need to think of it in both of those ways. And, and here's why I think that. For one, we see their success. We see the good things. We can see what they did right, and we can learn from them about what it looks like to thrive in a world that is not worshiping God, but is worshiping other gods. But there's one particular caution that I want us to get right here at the beginning that can come out when, you, when we preach or when we look at messages like this. And that is to, to 
overplay the similarities between the ancient world and ancient Rome and modern day the United States. These are two different places. This mentions Antipas, this man who was, who was slaughtered, who was martyred, killed for his faith. You and I are not there. Now, could we be? Of course. Things could change, but we don't want to pretend that we're too close. And so we might be hearing a message like this to say, yeah, it's right around the corner, and maybe it's not quite so close, but it's still good for us to hear because as we compare these similarities, we'll see some things that will help us as our age becomes more and more uh, pagan, more and more idolatrous, seeking after other things other than God. And so that's what we can hear this morning. This church is uh, situated in Pergamum. This is the furthest north of the cities of these letters, as they would have done a, a circuit to go around, delivering it to different places. The name itself just means a citadel. And if you were to go to Pergamum, you would have seen in the ancient world up high on a hill as you're approaching the city, where some people think that one of the reasons it says that this is Satan's throne is because it would look like a throne, the temple to Zeus and the temples that were there. They were built up on the hill over 1,000 feet above uh, sea level. And you could see from where the, the people lived up onto the city and where it was. And so it has this, this picture of a, a citadel. It's this great altar. And here's this image of Jesus, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He has a message for these people. And by the way, that's a quick reminder for us as we read this. Each of these uh, descriptions of Jesus is meant to, to give you a little bit of a picture about who we want to think about Jesus being as we read that letter. Here, Jesus with the two-edged sword is Jesus the judge. And so as we read this, we want to see Jesus the judge over all. One of the first things that we want to look at is what they did well. And this is going to help us to be able to learn how to thrive in an idolatrous world. One thing that we are told that they did well is that they held firmly, they held fast to the name of Jesus. They did not deny my faith, he says in verse 13, even in the days of Antipas. So they have this this track record going back for years as persecution in the Roman Empire would come in waves where there would be a bunch and then less and then more and then less. Here, we can look back and they have a track record of remembering who Jesus is. This man, Antipas, we don't know anything else about him except what we read right here, that he was killed among them and he is called a witness or a martyr. He is called my faithful one. And the way those are are phrased there are intended to remind us of Jesus who is already called the witness, the faithful one. So this man Antipas was pointing people to Jesus and helping them to see Jesus for who he was, who he is as the risen king. But this place is not a place where it's easy to be that kind of witness or to be that kind of light. You see what we read about it in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's 
throne is. And that verse wraps up as just a reminder where Satan dwells. Now, if we want to try to unpack exactly why he said that, your commentators will give you a ton of different reasons. And really, when you look at them, you can see a bunch of them. This is a city that had a history of of pagan temples. They were all over the place. People would have worshipped. They would have been there. They would have been doing that. It has, it's built around it so that it's up high in the city. But even more than that, this city was the first city in Rome to take advantage of emperor worship for for the city. And here's what I mean by this. When Caesar Augustus takes over in the Roman Empire, he begins to create this sort of cult that forces the citizens of the empire to worship the Caesar, the emperor, as Lord. And from the very beginning, Christians say, "Uh uh-uh, not my Lord. I have one of those already. You're not it. But here in Pergamum, this city took advantage of that and and, uh, campaigned to become the place where they would build a specific temple just for the emperor. And as each emperor would come into the Roman Empire, they would sort of, the cities would vie to be the place where that emperor's temple was. And Pergamum actually kind of won that competition twice. They had two different temples to Roman emperors. And if there's any place in the ancient world at this time when you would have really begun to see the stress of the worshiping of the emperor, Caesar is Lord, versus the worshiping of our King Jesus, this is the place where it was going to come out. This is the place where you would see it. And we can see here the faithfulness of God's people here. They held firmly. They held fast to the name of Jesus. I was joking with Kevin before we got started here that, you know, one of the, one of the both benefits and pitfalls of preaching verse by verse through the Bible the way that we do is that you end up on things that you'd rather not necessarily talk about every once in a while. Um, and, and I feel like I've been getting the short straw a couple of these times because in my text, what I keep getting is stuff that comes, that rubs up against politics. And these are hot button topics in our world. And we're not going to delve too deep into this, but I think we need to see some things from these folks who were doing this, at least in this part we'll see, faithfully about what it looks like. Because for us, we don't have an emperor who's insisting that we worship him. But does that mean that we don't have idols when it comes to politics or to our nation? I don't think it's quite so easy. I don't think we can just dismiss and say, oh, that was then when, when the emperor tried to get people to worship him instead of God. And now we don't have a government that tries to get us to throw God out of it or who doesn't let us worship or who doesn't want God to do with anything and wants to have us view it as the ultimate thing. Obviously, we do have so many of these things. So I think it'll, take, it'll be helpful for us to think for just a moment about what uh, it looks like for a Christian or what it can look like for a Christian to properly have a love for the state, the nation, in their, uh, in, in their life as, as a Christian. 
so that we don't fall into the trap of worshiping the government, but that so we might instead be called faithful just like these believers were at this moment. There's a lot of talk right now about uh, what people will call uh, nationalism, and I don't like using that word because I don't think it's particularly helpful. Some people mean by it uh, when, that when you go to that point where your nation has become your God, it has become the idol. It is the thing that you have to see succeed at all costs. It's the thing that gives you your identity. Um, but some people will mean something a little bit different by it, by saying that God has created individual nations. He's, he's, he's intended for there to be governors over this part and this part and this part. And each of us has a unique responsibility to love those who are near us and to, and to support those who we are in close proximity to. So you could be uh, patriotic in this sense, a nationalist versus this, a nationalist. And so I don't want to use the word. I don't like the word. But I want to help us to think a little bit about how do we avoid worshiping like this, Idolatry, of course, doesn't always look like us. Uh, it didn't even then look like it did in the Old Testament. Uh, already the expressions in Revelation look different than they did with uh, Elijah or Ezekiel, who saw people, uh, priests, cutting themselves and doing these things on the mountaintops and the high places. It, it changes depending on where you're located. So anytime. Some of this, hopefully we know this. This is a review, I hope. Anytime we look to something that is created rather than to the creator for something that we can only get from God, that is idolatry. If we find our fundamental identity in something that's created, in a government, in a place, in a person, that is idolatry. And we want to expand our definition a little bit to be able to see how this sort of text applies to us. We can hear this from Paul in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, where he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their, spec in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. You can hear Paul there. Oh, I love this. You can hear him echoing the language of Genesis, each part of the creation. When you take all of the different pieces of creation and you exchange the glory of God and worship these things you give them what you should only give God. You look to them for what you can only get from God. That is idolatry. So when we think about this in terms of a country, what do we want to think of? Well, I think we can say a few things. On the good side, we can say there is nothing wrong, biblically speaking, from loving, for, for, from loving your country. That's not a problem. You're not doing something wrong just by, by loving your country celebrating your country on the 4th of July or at a different time, these are not necessarily problems. Uh, those, are, those are acceptable things. We can see in Scripture that, in fact, the closer someone is to us, the more responsibility we have for them. 
Paul points to, to the church in Thess- Thessalonica and he tells them, you have a responsibility for your own household. And then Jesus talks about those who you live nearby, your neighbors, those who you're running across along the way. Those people you have a unique responsibility for. And so in, in many ways, this is an expression of that truth. It's not a problem for us either to serve our country. We just had the opportunity to, to celebrate yesterday the career of Dave, who, who has served protecting us in the police force, ATF. That is, that is a great thing. And we don't need to, as Christians, say, no, you can't do that. Or those who've left here from or who are getting ready to go serve in the military. We don't need to say that that's a problem. We have places in scripture where soldiers come to learn about Jesus and they're told to continue to do what they're doing. When, when they come to, to John the Baptist to speak to him. Uh, comparisons are made to the military. These things aren't a problem in and of themselves. Now, they can become a problem, but they aren't a problem. It's not a problem simply to serve your country, nor is it a problem to participate in the process. Now, for us, they didn't get to vote for anything. They didn't vote for emperor. We get to vote for our president. It's not a problem for us to vote. We can do these things. It's actually an expression of of love for our communities and for our neighbors. But the problem, the problem comes when this thing, this country, becomes not just a good thing, but an ultimate thing. We see that diagram sometimes of going up the throne of our heart to the very top. When the country goes to the top, what we begin to see is some things happen. Your identity as a citizen of your country becomes your fundamental identity to where you feel closer to someone who is an American, but not anything like you in terms of your faith than you would a Christian who just happens to live on the other side of the world. See, our our affinity as brothers and sisters in Christ should be the fundamental identity for us. A, A sinful worship of country will lead us to sinful actions. So we can always ask ourselves, we don't have to to start at the beginning and say, well, are we making our country an idol? Are we not? Here's the thing. It's going to show itself. We don't have to to dig into our hearts necessarily and do these uh, idol hunts, examining our psychology and trying to figure these things out. What will happen is it'll come out. Our words will be full of, of gossip slander. If you're unsure, here's something you can do. Go to 1 Corinthians. This is a practice for for yourself. If you're unsure and you want to check to see if something has become an idol for you, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see if your actions when you talk about your country or the the politics of your nation are in line with what Paul says about love. Are you impatient? Are you unkind? Are you proud? Are you boastful? If that characterizes you, then you are not among these right here that Jesus is commending for holding fast the name of Jesus. You're holding fast to some other name. But we want to be, we want to be like this. This is where we want to be in this, in this first piece here. 
And I want to give one other example because I think this is in some ways the, one of the most important ways that this plays out for us, or at least one of the biggest ways that this plays out for us. If you've taken, this can be anything. Let's just let's step aside for the moment because we're going to be going toward more broader idolatry here in just a moment. If something has become an idol for you, you will experience anxiety or fear in a sinful way if you don't have it or if you're worried about losing it. So let's think for a moment then about the difference between a sinful and a non-sinful fear. An ungodly worry versus a godly type concern. Because just, like, just because you have a concern for something, because you're speaking out about it, because you're... you're uh, really even in a way worried about it is the word we would use, doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's sinful. Here's what I mean, so we can unpack this in a, in a biblical way. We can look both at an ungodly worry and a godly concern, and we can say that in both cases, they can be deeply felt. Just because you have deep feelings about something doesn't mean that it's necessarily an idol in your life. This is an error I hear a lot when people are arguing about uh, so many different things. They say, he's too worried about that. He's too, he feels too strongly about it. Well, maybe, maybe not. It depends on what you mean. If it's leading to sin, then yes. But just because it's deeply felt doesn't mean that it's sinful. Jesus shows us that in the way that he cries out for Jerusalem, saying, how often I longed to gather you beneath my wings. Or when Jesus gets to the point in the garden where his, his prayer leads even his body to start to, to bleed from his sweat pores. He's sweating drops of blood. Jesus felt deeply, but he didn't sin. He had a great concern about what was about to happen, but he wasn't sinning. An ungodly worry and a godly concern can both be constant. This is another one that I hear sometimes. I just keep thinking about it. And you know, if you struggle with fear or anxiety or these types of things, that sometimes it can feel like a hamster wheel. You, just, you start to think about it, and then you just keep going, and then you go, and then it's 3 a.m., and you haven't stopped just thinking about these things, right? Just because it's constant doesn't necessarily mean that it's sinful, I think we can see this in places like Psalm 88 or Lamentations 2.18. What you see in those places are God's people crying out to God day and night. You can read the Psalms. You see broken sleep. But what you see is them coming to God nonstop in a way that's similar to the way that Jesus did. Both sorts of worry can can be persistent. But here's where we get to some differences. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just meant to help us do a little self-diagnosis. For if we have these sorts of idols in our lives that are manifesting themselves in this sort of fear or worry, an ungodly worry or fear will drive you away from God. You will stop thinking about him. You'll go to your own solutions. You'll start to problem solve all on your own 
But a godly concern is going to drive you to God in prayer. Again, when we see the psalmist praying, calling out day and night, that's the key distinction. They're calling out to God. That's what they're doing. They're not just spiraling out of control, although it may feel crazy still to them. They are instead calling out to God. Godly concern drives us to God in prayer. And ungodly worry will drive you away from God's people. You won't want to call somebody to talk about what's going on, a brother or sister, to help them anchor you back to God and his word. Instead, you'll want to keep living in that place of replaying and replaying and replaying. What if this happens? What if this person's elected? What if this happens to my kids? What if this happens here or there? And those will just replay themselves, and you won't want to come to a brother or sister about it. But a godly concern, on the contrary, is going to drive us toward God's people. We're going to see our need for one another. We're going to see the need to gather in community groups and share what's actually going on in our lives and not just give surface-level answers. And I don't say that because I see that happen necessarily. Just real quick, just commend our community groups. Every every, every group I've been a part of or I've seen, we do a great job at striving to, to really be with one another and share with one another as we need to. But of course, there's always room to grow. Finally, an ungodly worry will cause you to doubt God's promises. If you have a fear about something or, or something that's, that's replaying or you're continuing to think about, you won't want to go to God's word because you'll feel like it doesn't really give you anything. There's no answers here. It's not helping. Someone says, well, have you, know, have you read this verse or have you read this thing? About it? You're like, no, it doesn't help. Being driven away from God's word That is a sign of ungodly worry. But you can have a deep felt, constant concern that comes from God that causes you to go back to his promises, to see what he says, to see God's guarantees to take care of his people in scripture, the things he will give to those who will overcome. And you and I need so much to be able to remember who it is that God has said that we are. We need these promises. Because here's the thing. In the world that we live in, we are going to experience difficult things. We're we're going to experience things that are going to occupy our time and our lives for a given period of time at least, and maybe even for longer. But we want to be the sort of people who can even under that pressure be driven to God to God's people and rest in God's promises. We want to be the people who hold fast to the name of Jesus in all of these things. My wife and I, Holly, we watched recently, actually this week, something that we don't usually watch, but I think we might have a few folks who are guilty of in here. I won't make you raise your hand. Some of you, I suspect, are fans of these like serial killer documentaries on Netflix. I know we've had a few folks around who, who kind of get into these things. Um, we watched one. We don't usually do this. Uh, so I guess this one wasn't really a serial killer documentary. This was similar to that vein. This was a documentary that was on here recently. It was called The Puppet Master. I don't necessarily recommend it. I don't, I don't, neither here nor there, really. The story, though, is not a serial killer in this case. He's a con man. 
And in each instance, what this guy would do, and they trace him all the way from the 90s all the way up to the present day, where he'll sort of grab a victim and begin telling them stories about how he's a secret agent and how he needs them to do this task or this task or this task. And he gets them to start giving him money. And all along the way, he's conned people now out of like millions of of pounds or whatever in the, the UK. And it sounds nuts when you hear it the first time, where you're like, how could these people keep falling for this guy? And they interviewed some of the people who've been, who, who were a part of it. And they said, well, you know, he doesn't, he would connect it to something that had happened that seemed real. And then he would just again and again and again, little by little, tell more, a little more, a little more, ask you to do something, a little more, a little more, a little more. And one person shared that after she had already been, with the, been sort of connected to this guy, not with him, she was with him for a while, and then he sort of hid her away at a house and didn't have anything to do with her. For 10 years, she was missing from her family. And he had already made her uh, take different jobs and change her name so many times that when her father and the police finally came and caught up with her and knocked at the door and called her by her name, she said she, she didn't even recognize the name. Like it was, it was something out of a, out of a dream to, to even remember, yeah, my name is Sarah. That's right. That's my name. And I think that's the sort of thing that, that was, was happening here and happens to us. That the world around us keeps telling us crazy stories about how God is not faithful. About how this isn't true. How this isn't good news. Those are crazy stories. But we hear it. A little here. A little there. A little here. A little more. They ask something of us. And we get deeper and deeper in until we've forgotten the name. We want to be people who hold fast to the name. To the name of Jesus. That's our first application this morning. Hold fast fast to the name. This means remembering him. This means turning to him with our concerns. The next section here takes a bit of a turn as each of these letters does. As they're uh, commended for being faithful and holding firmly to the name, he says this in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. The second point, the thing that we want to see and understand this morning, is that idolatry will try to enter unnoticed. As we just said, we hear a little bit here, a little bit there, a little more, until Satan is able to convince us of absolutely crazy things about God. And and what we see here is what was happening to some among this church that were being left alone and tolerated to continue to be led astray. The name here that's brought up is the teaching of Balaam. Now, there's a a lot to say about this. There's several chapters in the book of Numbers that we could go back and read about Balaam and about who he was. Many of you will remember the story about Balaam's donkey who stops him on the road and ends up talking to him because Balaam keeps striking him. 
And what had happened there is Balaam was summoned to give a curse against Israel. And um, Balaam was, was, a, uh, was well known at that time for his ability to supposedly curse and have those things come true. You can read even extra biblical accounts of this guy, Balaam, who supposedly has this reputation. And scripture goes out of its way to take three chapters to point out the fact that every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, what he ended up doing was giving a blessing instead, because God had authority even over him. But what kind of pops up a little bit that we don't necessarily notice is uh, something in in, uh, Numbers 25, 1 through 3. And this is, I think, what, what... he's referring to here in this passage. In Numbers 25, we read this. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to commit infidelity with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel became followers of Baal, of Peor, and the Lord was angry with Israel. If you're continuing to read and you find you'll find in Numbers 31 looking back at that event, it says this, behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So if you've read Numbers, you know there's this moment when the people the children of Israel commit idolatry, but it comes in in a kind of sneaky way. The, uh, the, the thing is that they end up near these other nations, and they start kind of hanging out with them, and they get to know the women, and they start sharing meals and sharing food, and, and one thing kind of leads to another, and then you have sexual immorality, and you have this food, and you have this idolatry, and those are the specific things that are mentioned here. He, Balak, uh, Balaam, who kept teaching Balak too, put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that is, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So what's happening here is that here in this place, something similar is happening. I think the best way to read the next verse even, so you too, right along with that, in the same way, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there's a comparison being drawn here. You have people among your church who just like Israel back before were tempted away from God toward idols. And it happens in this sort of subtle way. I'm reminded here of uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 Verses 18 and 19, when he says this, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the, cro- uh, of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That's the sort of thing that we have happening here. That idolatry doesn't really happen up here first. It's not usually the thing where someone says, 
Are you going to go worship something else? And we say, yeah, that sounds good. I think I'll do that. Instead, it's, it's an appetite. It's, it's, a, it's in the stomach. It's, it's in the belly. It's something before you think about. It's, it's the sort of thing that you've already made a decision about before you even start to think about it. I think there's a really great common grace way for us to think about this, or, or at least something that's been helpful to me. There's a particular book that I, that I found helpful in a lot of ways uh, fairly recently called the, uh, the Righteous Mind. And this is a psychologist whose name is Jonathan Haidt, and he talks about the ways that we go about forming uh, moral judgments about the world. How do, we, how do we come up with what we think is right and wrong? And he's not, a, he's not a believer. He's just looking at the world and he's saying, how do people make these sorts of judgments? And they're doing some trials and tests to try to figure it out. And what they find is that in the majority of cases, or really as best as they can prove, it seems that people have already made up their mind about what's right and wrong. And then they try to rationalize later on the reasons for why something is good or bad. And we could go into all the reasons and how they came up with that. It's an interesting thing, but that's not really what we're after here. The idea is that many are saying, even now and pointing out to us, that we don't necessarily make all of our decisions with our rational faculties. Instead, we sort of want something. We crave something. We want that to be the case. And then we afterwards explain why we want to do that. So psychologists are trying to name They're trying to describe this thing. But I want to suggest to you, the Bible is giving us the reality of what's happening. It isn't just that we do whatever we want, although we talked this morning at ABF. That is pride and deciding for ourselves is is certainly a key piece of what sin is. But, But we want to worship. You and I were all created to worship. You will worship and desire something at all times. And that, what you worship, is going to be what drives your decisions, what drives your words. That's what Jesus means when he talks about out of the heart are where words come from. That this is how we should understand our lives as Christians, That if we worship rightly, then our actions will follow. We will love one another. We will follow the law. We will do what God wants. But the problem is that all of us have a worship disorder. We want to worship something that isn't God. And whenever we do that, it leads us astray. It leads us to sin. And we need to understand, even for us as Christians, it is True for us, too, that we will be led astray by our hearts, and our minds will follow along. Now, that's not an absolute rule, because we can do things, and God has given us, God has given us graces by which he allows us to actually change things. One of the illustrations that uh, is used a lot in that book that I mentioned is that we can think about the way that we try to, try to lead our actions as riding an elephant. And so the idea sort of being that if you're riding an elephant, the elephant is going to go whichever way the elephant wants to go. And you can just pretend like you're directing it up top. 
You're not, you're not going get to get to lead it. You're going to say, go right, and then it goes left, and you say, okay, go left. And that's how it's going to be. And that's essentially how we work. That's how you and I operate. We will do what we, what we worship. We're, what we find, what is, what is our glory? What we find our satisfaction in? What we're looking for? That's where we will go. And then we'll provide a reason for it later on. But God, in his grace, knowing that we were created like this, has given us ways that we can actually begin to tame the elephant. That we can actually learn to be better worshipers. That we can worship God in spirit and in truth. That we can read God's word and hear from his spirit who who literally transforms our souls to be more in the likeness of God. That as you and I gather together as the church and remind one another of the truths of the gospel, God's spirit transforms and trains the elephant of our hearts. As we sing songs together that remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, those truths don't just stay up here. That's one of the reasons we sing and we don't just talk. That's one of the reasons we participate in worship and read back and forth. Because as we participate, as we stand, as we sit down, as we sing, as we do these things, God's spirit is doing something deeper in our hearts that any of us realize. These patterns in our lives that God has given us through his word are powerful. And they allow us to learn how to correct the worship disorder in our hearts. It allows God to change that. So in light of that, the application is that we, we should become better elephant tamers together. We should become better worshipers. Training that part of our heart that leads us, that shows us where to go and shows us what's right. And one of the key things about this is this is not something that you can do alone. That's one of the things we see here in this text. What he has against them is not just that there are these people here who are following their stomachs to some other God, but that the other Christians in the church aren't doing anything about it. You and I are God's people. We are God's instrument to make change in one another's lives. We need one another. And there is a judge with a two-edged sword who will judge those who are being led astray. That should hit us in the gut. We should hear that. We need one another. We need to be better elephant tamers together. Finally, hearing from those, these, these believers in Pergamum, who are further down the road than us, who are speaking back to us about this trail, who are being witnesses to us. How do we overcome in this type of world? The simple answer is repentance. Repentance is the secret to overcoming. These folks were among you, and he says in verse 16, therefore, repent 
or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a call to repent. But then right along with that call to repentance, he, he gives these promises, these I wills. Here's what I will give. Here's what I will do. I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. So we have here a call to repent, but we have here an offer of hope. This is a future hope. This this manna is not exactly the same as the, the manna that we read about in the Old Testament that Israel ate when they were in the wilderness. We know from Jesus speaking to us in the New Testament that he described himself as the bread of life, as essentially manna from heaven that we need. But here, looking forward to what they will receive is this hidden. It's hidden. You can't see it yet, but there is a food that's waiting for you. Do you hear the connection? On the one hand, the the error of Balaam that that is leading the people astray is food. It's appetite. It's, It's sexual questions and things like that. It's like Paul said in Philippians, The God is the stomach. But what he offers is a better food. He doesn't say, well, it's bad of you to desire food. It's bad of you to desire uh, something. Instead, he says, wait. (coughs) Sorry. This is better. There's a hope. Then he says, I will give him a white stone. Now, the meaning exactly of the white stone, I don't know. (laughs) Many people don't know exactly. There's a bunch of things that it could probably be referring to. Stones could be given as a kind of ticket to get into a a wedding or some kind of an event. It could be a prize for, for winning something. It could be a, a judgment where they would, uh, in, in a court sort of setting, where you'd be given a, a dark black stone for guilty or a white stone saying that you were, you were innocent. And you know, one of the things about John, the way, the way that this, these things are written that you see so much, are that a lot of times when there's something that could mean multiple things, it's, it's often that way on purpose. It, it's that way to, to keep you from getting too deep into the weeds of that thing, and often to kind of say, all of that. This is something that you receive as a victor for overcoming. The one who does this gets entry to the wedding feast of the lamb. The one who gets this is receiving a verdict of not guilty. This is what you have to look forward to. But on it, he says, is written a name. And he doesn't say it. He doesn't say what it is. But the person who gets it knows. I think that's significant because as we kind of sang a moment ago, it's true that God knows you. He knows not just the the facts about you that other people know. He knows the real you. 
He knows the, the thoughts that you have, the doubts that you have, the things that replay in your mind. He knows the real you. And that is a powerful thing to know. In a similar way, in this sort of uh, secret, he gives you this thing that's just between the two of you, I think is a, is a helpful reminder that there should be a personal aspect to your relationship with Jesus. This is my Lord, our place. Certain verses ring with truth that he has spoken and delivered to you. But, but really more than even those things, the new name that we see throughout here and in places in Isaiah 65 and 66, more than anything, denotes a, a new status. Something has changed. There is a new creation. Those two things are paired often together. Jerusalem gets a new name, but it retains the name Jerusalem. It's an expression of a new status. But one of the other things we see about this name is that in every other situation where we're told the name that no one knows, we are actually told what it is. And in those cases, it's the name of Jesus. You could continue on in the the following chapters, and we'll see in a number of other places in Revelation. We don't have time to do that this morning. The name is the name of Jesus. And I think that's the best way for us to, to see this here that you are given the name of Jesus. You are given a new status. There is a new creation. If you overcome, if you are one of these people, you receive something new. And if you think about it that way, what was the first thing that they were already commended for? It was holding fast to the name of Jesus. And this is the gospel truth for us this morning. We can hold fast to his name. We can have hope that he changes our hearts because he's already given his name. We will get it and we already have it to hold fast to. The new status for you and I is already here. Paul has told us there is a new creation if anyone is in Christ. Something new has already started in you. There is a hope of these things that you will receive. He knows you, and still, and still. so much left to say. The application for us is simply this. Repent of idolatry in your own life. If there are ways that you haven't been concerned uh, about others, if there are ways that you've let your uh, concern become an ungodly worry, repent. Pray. After you do that, pray for a hunger for what you can't see yet. This is a hidden manna. They don't see this food yet. You can see the food that the idols are offering you. It's right in front of you. You can see it. But there's a hidden food, a better food, and we need a hunger for that. 
That's what, that's what we need to hunger for, and God can accomplish that in our lives. And finally, we can rest in what is already ours. We can know that there's a, there's a bread, a food that satisfies every hunger. There's a name that calms every worry and fear. There's a victory that's promised to you. There's a king who has already overcome. He is a perfect witness. He is perfectly faithful. We can hold fast to him because he is holding fast to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word once again this morning. We pray that you will help us to to hear it, help to convince us that all of the idols are worthless. There's nothing there. There's no hope. But with you, there is hope. With you, there is everlasting joy. There is a, a food that we can't wait to taste. With you, we have everything. Help us to be the sort of people who overcome. Help us to be the sort of people who are, who are here for one another, helping one another grow, keeping one another from being led astray to treating something that's created as the creator. And God, we praise you for your work in our lives, for the work the Spirit is doing in changing us. And I pray that as we sing with the remaining time that we have here, that we would be uniquely aware of the reality of what's happening when we sing together. That we are encouraging one another. That singing your words allows them to become something deeper than just something that we think. But that being reminded of who you are, we might love you above all else. We thank you once more for our time together. We pray your blessing on the remaining time and for the week to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.